today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As you've heard on the news this morning, the uh, trial of, uh, well, the second of the two Michaels uh, happened in the Chinese uh, courtroom today. This time around, of course, it was Michael Kovrig who was on trial. The uh, verdict has uh, not yet been rendered as it was on the, and not rendered uh, on Friday as well. Uh, Jim Nickel, the Canadian Embassy's Deputy Chief de Mission, uh, told reporters outside the courthouse that Canada is pleased that the United States has shown a good deal of support for Spavor following uh, the trials and, of course, also for Michael Kovrig today. We're working closely with uh, the United States as well to secure the immediate release of Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. And uh, uh, so we're hopeful that uh, in, in some measure, uh, this trial may too lead to uh, their uh, immediate release. 832 days. Uh, the two Michaels have been targeted and uh, put in prison in rather austere conditions. Uh, will this come to a, an end that we can all be pleased with? Uh, can we get the two Michaels back in Canadian soil? Uh, great question. We're not quite sure exactly what's going on because, well, as we say, Canadian authorities are not even allowed in the courtroom uh, for either one of those trials. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, Professor, uh, thanks as always. Great to have you back on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, to the surprise of no one, of course, the trial is over. They, these things take an hour and a half, two hours, or something like this. Uh, we have no idea. Uh, we have a basic idea of the charges, but uh, the, the lack of transparency here has got to be one of the most troubling things. Yeah, I mean, um, we saw this. Uh, we had a preview of what was to come. Um, you know, the, the trial started there about 12 hours ahead, so it started about 10 o'clock uh, last night, uh, Toronto time. And, yeah, we had a preview of that because of what happened on Friday because the trial uh, just was, it was very brief and uh, there was no verdict and there was no one allowed in. So, yeah, not, not too many surprises there. So that is um, really kind of um, surprising. The one thing that was a bit surprising, though, is that it, it, the trial itself, it, it, the one that was just had today for Michael Kovrig, actually took a long time um the one that the the one in um uh, a different part of, of china it was in dandong for michael Savoir, it was only about two hours the one for michael kovrig was uh probably closer to, to eight seven or eight hours so that is significant uh we don't really know why that was the case but it is different from what we did see on friday but the Overall, I think the lack of transparency, the fact that there's no consular assistance or representation, uh, the fact that it's, it's completely closed is was to be expected and is unfortunate. But in the absence of information, though, it's hard for us to try to read anything into the fact that this trial took almost four times as long. Yeah, I know. I, and that's, that's what's bizarre. And I haven't really heard any explanation from that. I'm certainly not expecting any explanation from that uh, from China, uh, the Chinese government or the Chinese court system. So, no, we, we don't really know. The main difference may be the fact that uh, Michael Kovrig, of course, was a diplomat uh, during his uh, time in China and then left the diplomatic service. He was on leave working for the International Crisis Group, which is a think tank where he was writing a report about China and North Korea. So presumably, the charges would not cover his time as a diplomat because that would be a serious violation of international law uh, in, in the sense that, you know, you, you're not allowed to, to charge diplomats with crimes. But um, it, they seem to have targeted him because he wasn't acting as a diplomat at the time he was you know, arrested. He was working in a think tank, gathering information like 
a normal researcher would. So, you know, there may be some some more specific uh, issues that they may have gone into with regards to to what those charges are. But frankly, we don't know. I mean, they could have just been standing there. They could have been waiting. It's not at all clear why it did take longer. Uh, in the Toronto Star today, uh, our columnist Rosie Domano uh, contends that uh, freedom for Kovrig and Spavor runs straight through Washington. Do you agree with that? It seems that way. I, I think um, this started with, um, you know, the the charges that were brought against Meng Wanzhou. This is clearly the, their arrest, the arrest of the two Canadian citizens. And we should also mention here, because this is often forgotten, but there were also two other citizens who had prison sentences that were then augmented, uh, augmented to death sentences very quickly after this as well. So it's not just the two Michaels. There's a number of, of Canadians in prison, some now awaiting the death sentence as well as a result of this. But yes, I mean, this, this was retaliation, despite how much China denies it. It, it, it. You always seem to have, you know, Chinese officials will say, oh, no, this is completely unrelated, and Canada must release Meng Wanzhou in the same breath. You know, so, I mean, they're, they're sending a clear signal there. Um, going through Washington, I think, is, is probably correct. I think we have to have the three countries sit down and work something out. Now, I don't think this means giving in. I think when you... Uh, hear the language about this. It's often, well, Canada should just give Meng back and, and forget the United States. Uh, I, I don't, I, I think what we have now is a U.S. administration that is prepared to defend Canada in a way that the Trump administration simply was not. And, uh, you know, a, a U.S. administration that understands that if China is able to thwart U.S. diplomatic and justice and criminal initiatives, by simply kidnapping the citizens of its allies, then that's not good for U.S. interests as well. So the U.S. does have an interest in making sure the situation does get re- resolved and resolved quickly. Now, one possibility here is that, you know, there's some kind of plea agreement where Meng decides to plead guilty. Uh, she is not extradited, but, uh, you know, pays, uh, you know, Huawei pays us, uh, uh, some kind of fine and she's able to go back to China the U.S. gets what, you know, the U.S. gets what it wants, which is a, a guilty verdict, you know, a guilty plea. The uh, China gets what it wants, which is a return of Meng Wanzhou. And Canada would hopefully get its um, hostages back as well. But, you know, this is a really important point. Um, you can make all the deals you want with China. There's simply no guarantee they're going to hold up their end of the bargain. And we have seen that time and time again. Right now, for example, there is an agreement between Canada and China, which guarantees consular access. Uh, during arrest. You know, China's saying, well, this is a national security case, so we, we, we can't abide by these rules. But that is just, you know, they, they don't hold up their end of the bargain. So whatever deal we make, we have to also be prepared that this may be something that, that China doesn't, up, you know, fulfill its end of the bargain. It, it, it could do a whole bait and switch on Canada. Um, and that's something I do worry about. Are we being too naive to suggest this is really just about Meng and the two Michaels, and, and if she were to be free, then automatically the problem goes away? There's there's a much bigger picture here, and, and it's it's really uh, China versus the United States. I mean, they're in a stare-down right now on a whole lot of different levels. Uh, and, and I know that Secretary of State Antony Blinken was, was talking about this over the weekend. Uh, and, and there are those that would contend that, uh, that yeah, okay, that might have been a, a payback for, for the rest of Wang. But this is really, this is to, to try to weaken the American position too. The Chinese are looking at this and saying, look at what we're doing to the Canadians, and you guys can't do anything about it. Uh, there, there's, there's so many different things at play here. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love this question, and, and not because the answer to it is happy. Um, but yeah, no, there is so many different levels to this. I really think we can see so much of the problems that plague Canada's foreign policy, let alone the U.S., through this issue, right? I mean, how does Canada, you know, you often see this portrayed as, oh, Canada's caught between two superpowers and there's nothing we can do. Well, I, I actually reject that. I think that there's, there's things that we can do, and, but we just have to decide how. Um, for example, you have, you know, how are we supposed to do business with a country that tries to circumvent the rule of law through kidnapping, right? We need to figure out a strategy on this because China is not going away. And as much as people are like, oh, well, that just means we won't do any business with China. Well, it's a sixth of the world's population and the world's second largest economy to say we can just close it off is, is unrealistic. But what we do need is a strategy, diplomatic tools. We need better understandings with our allies. Um, I've seen um, some reports today, for example, that Canada is uh, going to sign on and uh, onto uh, some kind of agreement with other Western countries, uh, Canada and the EU, for example, that is going to basically put sanctions on China for the Uyghur genocide. Now, that's that's a good thing. The other good thing that we did here was, you know, we rallied almost 60 countries together to say basically that, uh, you know, we should not have hostage taking as an instrument of diplomacy, right? So there's an agreement in place. So what we are seeing is, you know, Canada having to, to find and develop diplomatic tools to try and deal with this rising superpower. So, you know, there are things here in this space that we can do, but we just simply haven't acted and we haven't we, you know we kind of look at china uh, like a bit like a deer in headlights and we are, we freeze in place we don't really know what to do but we have to start making decisions and we all have to do that in the context of the fact that you know right now we have a u.s administration that's willing to to play a multilateral role but one that may not always be there so you know we need to look at this through canadian eyes through canadian interests and figure out what tools that we need figure out, you know, the alliances that we need to put in place with the understanding that the United States may not always be there. Um, but yeah, right now we need to take advantage of the fact that we do have a presidential administration in place and hopefully some kind of bargain can be reached because no one is benefiting from this. There was a very heartbreaking interview with Michael Kovrig's wife uh, wow. on CBC this, this weekend, and I would encourage uh, all listeners to watch it. I mean, we have to remember at the end of this, yes, there's this geopolitical game, but there's also a family um, that is missing their their son, their husbands, their, you know, father. Uh, there's it, it really is a heartbreaking case. And so, yes, a diplomatic solution is there. Yes, there's a lot of uh, or the potential for a diplomatic solution, I, I think, is there. I think we have to be very careful in not legitimating kidnapping as an instrument of foreign policy if we do come up with a diplomatic solution. But at the heart of this, we also have to remember this family that has been going through this now for, you know, well over 300 days, which is um, just ridiculous. And, um, you know, my heart really breaks out to it. So, yeah, I mean, all that to confirm your point, this is a very multi-layered, multifaceted issue that goes from everything from very personal relationships to the geopolitical. And it's not an easy problem to solve, but I worry that we've hesitated and even trying to solve it for so long that it's put us off in a worse position than we otherwise otherwise would be. 
Don't disagree with that at all. Uh, and there may be some reticence to get involved with economic sanctions uh, because, uh, you know, people tend to forget. I mean, Canada, U.S. is Canada's number one trading partner. China is number two. Uh, and, and they wield a, a, a pretty big you know, hammer when it comes to that. But uh, I wanted to get your, your read on this, though. Colin Robertson, who's the ex-Canadian consul in Hong Kong, uh, suggesting that you, Canada can hit back. And one of the things he's suggesting is is that uh, banning uh, the, the, the children of Communist Party members from studying in English-speaking countries. A number of them do, of course, come over to Canada and the United States and the U.K. Uh, for uh, post-secondary education and university education. If you simply say you're not allowed to do that anymore, that that that's not an economic sanction, but it's certainly going to resonate with an awful lot of the, the highly-ranking communist officials in that country. Yeah, I think that's one thing. Another, I mean, that that would be one area um, that I think, you know, um, we have the Chinese, uh, you know, someone pointed out that for all the belligerent rhetoric that the Chinese officials gave out and during this Alaska meeting between um, the U.S. Uh, and uh, Chinese foreign ministers uh, this week, that, you know, the Chinese foreign minister's daughter is actually studying at Yale. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, uh, for, for being a terrible country, this is where, uh, the Chinese, uh, ambassador is, or foreign minister has decided to, to send his daughter to school. So, um, that's, you know, so that's, that's definitely one step that could be taken. I think we need to start asking some harder questions. So that's a fairly easy response. I think, uh, my, my first reaction is we need to start looking at Chinese foreign investment in Canada and start saying, look, if there's a risk that your industry will kidnap Canadians in order to make a political point or to engage in course of diplomacy, maybe we should not be allowing foreign investment in this sector, right? Um, you know, so, so I think clamping down on, on foreign investment where there's a risk of hostage taking. I think a second step that could be taken would be to, um, and this is a hard one for Canadians in particular, but why, why are we going to the Beijing Olympics? You know, it seems crazy to me that we would attend an Olympics in the same city where Michael Kovrig is being held in a prison um, and that there's a genocide in the country. Like, let's, let's start there. But, I mean, um, this, is, this to me is, is kind of the, the little bit more hardball. Now, Canada can't do this by itself. I, I mean, it could. I don't think it would be as effective. But it's time to start having some very real conversations with our allies about, you know, how do we think about foreign investment? How do we think, like the Olympics, that would be a, a pretty hard blow, I think, for China if, if a bunch of Western countries decide that, you know, they can't morally support, um, you know, attending a games where there's, you know, one mil- at least one million people in, in concentration camps in Xinjiang province. So I think, you know, these are the kinds of conversations that we need to have. We need to start, you know, we, we, they talk about carrots and sticks. And I don't, we need, I don't want to say, like, you hear a lot of talk, we should just cut off relations with China, we don't need to talk to China, we absolutely fundamentally need to be talking to China. But at the same time, you know, it kind of gets down to implementing certain costs, and like costs for China for the kind of actions that it's engaging in. And those are going to be things that reflect prestige. Those are going to be things that reflect investment. And it's time, perhaps, that we start looking at these beyond things like, you know, stopping a certain cadre of elite students from coming to to Canada or the United States.
But your point's well taken, though. I mean, if Canada were to boycott those Olympics, they'd say, who cares? Uh, but if, if members of the G7 were to do that, uh, that makes a statement. And, and that's the sort of thing that would catch the, the attention of the Chinese, I guess. But, uh, and there was hope springing eternal, I suppose, after the Biden administration was elected that, hey, uh, his tougher stance against China might actually precipitate that sort of action. But we haven't seen anything in that regard yet, and time's running out. I mean, uh, we're getting a lot of, of, of vocal support from people like uh, Secretary of State Blinken and, and President Biden, for that matter, too. Uh, but we're not sure just what, how it's resonating and what kind of an impact it's having. Yeah, I mean, it really, I think it can go two ways. One is that, you know, um, you know, what one of the positive things that came out of the trial that, you know, started last night, Toronto time, was that the fact that, you know, there were, I believe, 28 diplomats from 26 countries there. Uh, that's wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. That is a real sign to Beijing that this is not a Canada problem, that you're trying to squeeze Canada. But you know what? A lot of other countries that have our back and are making a point of not just saying it, but showing up, right? That is huge. That is really good. Um, and then the second issue is is that I think, the, like I said earlier, I think the United States recognizes that if China is able to undo U.S. actions or preferences in the world by taking hostages of its allies, that's a real problem for the United States. So, yeah, I mean, I think I, I do think that there is pressure to to, you know, address this and to make sure that it stops. And I think that Beijing, yeah, we don't really know. They could go two ways on this. The first way would be to, to kind of recognize that all of this is happening, that other countries are standing with us. And this has really damaged relations with other countries. But if you look at President Xi, he's not someone who ever backs down, right? He's someone who really does not back down very, very you know, very seldomly. And so I, I have to wonder if, you know, I don't think we should look at the timing of the trials of the two Michaels as coincidental. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, this was clearly planned. And it may be a sign that Beijing's trying to show that, you know, you can say whatever you want to us, America. We're, we're going to treat your allies how we want to. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that may have been the signal that, that Beijing was, was trying to send. Well, we'll see what the reaction is over the next couple of days. Anyway, Professor, thank you as always for your time and your perspective. I really appreciate it. Well, it's, it's a sad topic, but it's always it is. sad. It is. Thanks again. Professor Stephanie Carbon, of course, from Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.